Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Antioch in the book of Acts and how it can be a model for ministry for us. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to thank you for listening to our sermons. Our church runs on a fiscal year. That means that we are currently thinking about the work God has done in our church in the last year. One of the big things that we are celebrating is how many times our sermon audio has been listened to over 40,000 times. We reached the top charts in multiple countries in the category of Christianity, and people in countries all over the world listened. The most listened to sermon was one I preached in 2015 called Psalms, Hymns, and Songs. The most listened to sermon that was preached at our church this year was Water Into Wine. Perhaps even cooler is that I was able to talk to people who have been impacted by our sermons that don't even live anywhere near us. We are not a big church and it is truly amazing to know that our sermons are making a difference. Anyway, I want to say a big thank you to all of you who have taken time to listen, especially those of you that listen consistently. From those of you in Delta, Colorado, to those outside of Wichita, Kansas, to those in Los Angeles and Dallas, to those in Boardman, Oregon, to those in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and everywhere else. I love knowing that you're out there. I love knowing that the preparation I put into making a sermon is important far beyond the walls of our church. Thank you. As always, I hope that this sermon and all the others will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Uh, This is the plan that uh, Chad gave me. He said, uh, gave everybody certain uh, topics for the Church of Antioch, and then he gave me the last one and said, this is the word, and the only word is on, that's on there, summary. <laughs> okay, so I'm the summary, and uh, I'm going to read the summary passage. If you don't mind standing as I read this, this is from Acts chapter 18, 22 through 23. It says this, and when he arrived at Caesarea, He went up and greeted the church at Jerusalem and then went down to Antioch. After he spent some time there, Paul left and went through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You can sit. And Paul was an apostle. He went to all these different churches. But one of the things that all the churches needed was strength. When you think about the church existing in American culture right now, you think it could benefit from from some strength, maybe some backbone, because in many ways, the church is having to stand against things that it can be hard to stand against. But I want to tell you as we get into this summary, uh, a, a quick story uh, of mine. This is when I was dating my now wife, Ashley, and it, I was helping with the youth group here at this church back in the day when we had a youth group. And uh, I was uh, at my, during my undergrad, in the later parts of my undergraduate degree at George Fox, I was studying biblical studies. And there's something inside of me, though. I don't know if any of you have something inside of you that's like this, but uh, there's a part of me that just loves to win. And sometimes I don't always weigh the cost. There's a part of me that just needs to kind of prove a point and, and, and make sure that I'm on top. And I say this because, we'll straighten this out. I say this because when I was at the youth group, we found out sort of as a church that one of the mothers of a youth kid was being courted by a Jehovah's Witness. That is this Jehovah's Witness knocked on the door, got into her house and was teaching her these things and he was coming consistently to her home and she was thinking about converting to uh, the church, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses and Uh, They invited me, though. She invited me to come over and be a part of one of these meetings, to be a sort of counterbalance. And so here I am. I know the Bible uh, pretty well at this point in in biblical studies, and I'm thinking, 
this Jehovah Witness has no chance. He's got no chance. Now, if, if you uh, don't know, um, Jehovah Witnesses, um, they started in 1870 in Pennsylvania. I actually went to Pennsylvania very recently. I got to see the Amish community, beautiful place, but also the birthplace of the Jehovah Witness in 1870. There's a guy named Charles Taze Russell. They actually used to call him Russellites back in the day. That was like the jab, you Russellite. Uh, and then he died in 1916. There was another guy named Judge Rutherford, and they became known as the Watchtower Society and later the Jehovah Witnesses. But you don't know what they believe yet. Here, let me tell you some funky things, but here are the big ones. Jesus was just Michael the archangel, okay? He was a created being. Now, he was the first created being, but he was just the angel, Mark, Michael. Uh, you know how you're saved is by the things that you do. Why do you think they're knocking on your doors all the time? Because if they don't meet the quota, they're not going to be saved. In fact, do you know that there's millions of Jehovah Witnesses? But none of them, none of them feel safe. Because at the end of time, only 144 are raised and live in heaven with Jesus Christ. 144,000, I should say. So 144,000 are saved. Uh, Jesus is the archangel. The Holy Spirit, by the way, doesn't exist as a person. That's not a thing. There is no trinity. So they've got some weird beliefs. And I was ready, man. I had my Bible all tallied up, every scripture, every verse. And I was, I was thinking, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to decimate this man. Every single thing he tries to say, I am going to meticulously and biblically debunk. And I did. I was on fire. This guy was like, well, as you can see, by the way, they have their own version of the Bible, how they translate it because they find things. They're like, ooh, this is really hard to justify. What if we just change it, right? So they have their New World translation where they actually will add or omit certain words to make it easier for their case. But man, I was on fire. I was just erasing this guy, absolutely erasing him. And I couldn't help but smirk in this, right? I'm like, come on. You got nothing. Whoop. You got nothing. I don't need it. And uh, by the end of it, though, I could tell that this guy never wanted to speak to me again. And then I look at the woman whom I'm there to help and see that she is totally confused. She didn't understand all that biblical jargon. All she saw was two men fighting over the Bible. And I went home that night, and I was mad, and I was mad entirely at myself. Because there were three souls in that room, mine, hers, and the missionaries, and one argument, and all I cared about was the argument. I forgot my purpose in that moment. It was to win a soul, and I went to win an argument. It is fundamentally important that we remember the purpose of the church. If you don't remember the purpose of the church, you just might forget why you're here. And don't get it wrong like I did. I was there for a purpose, and I forgot it. I missed an opportunity. That man never wants to speak, me to speak to me again. And this woman doesn't understand me anyways, so what's the point of having me there? So as a summary, I want to talk about the purpose of the church. But before we can get there, there are three foundational questions that I want to answer. I'll answer them as briefly as I can. Uh, but the first one is just what is church, right? What is church? 
And the second is, what is my purpose? And the third is, how are those two questions related? You hear that? What is the church? What is my purpose? And how are those two questions related? Uh, The first thing to answer is, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard it. In fact, I've seen it tattooed on people's arms before. You might see this Greek word. It's ekklesia. And it's formed by the prefix ek and also kaleo, which is to call out. And it just means the called out ones. Right? You are the called out ones in ecclesia. But theologians actually use this word church in two different ways. And you've probably heard it. You've heard the uh, big C church, like when we capitalize it, or you've heard the universal church. The term actually that we use, and it's a scary word because of what you think about, but I'm going to say it, is the Catholic church. Now you think denomination. You think Roman Catholic. But the Catholic Church, that word Catholicus in, in Latin or Catholicos in Greek, just means the all-encompassing church as a term. And we are all here, presumably, part of this Catholic Church, the universal church. It is defined by what you are. If you are someone who is a repentant person who worships Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are a Christian, and therefore you are part of the big C church. You are part of the universal church. You're part of the Catholic church, the all-encompassing church. And so in that way, church is simply defined by what you are. In fact, I'll read uh, the passage that we often use for this. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Am I going like loud and quiet? I'm sorry, I keep adjusting this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. And so you and me and our brothers and sisters and other denominations were all part of that big C church. But what we're doing here is church as well. In fact, it's exactly what the church of Antioch was. It was the other term we used, which is simply the local church. Now, this is a really important distinction. So at least hear this. The big C church is defined by what you are. The local church is defined by what you are doing. What you are, Christians, and when Christians come together locally, they're doing something. What are they doing? That's the local church. So the big C church is all Christians, and the local church is what Christians are doing locally. And there is a... By the way, hold on to that because it will become important later. But the second question that we sometimes struggle with is, what is my purpose? In fact, that's not a uniquely Christian question, right? I mean, people have asked for millennia, what is the purpose of life? For me, it's it's kind of a strange question uh, because it is answered in the Bible more clearly than almost any other question. If you don't know, in the Old and New Testament, there's hundreds of verses that tell you what your purpose is. There's over 100 in the New Testament alone. But I'm going to give you just five verses here, and maybe you can discern for yourself what you think the Bible is saying about your purpose. If you don't get it, I'll tell you anyways. Here's Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who belongs to me, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, yes, whom I have made. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and 
Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John 15.8. So, so this is my Father, Sorry, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So to prove to be my disciples. Did you catch it? That our purpose is to glorify God. So the, the question should never be, what is my purpose? The question is, how do I live into that purpose? How, as a Christian, do I glorify God? You see how that's a different question? Our purpose is to glorify God. So the question we need to answer, that we need to live into, is how do we glorify God with our lives? I mean, there's some answers there. By bearing fruit. Right? By living out uh, a Christ-like life for the sake of others so that they know that you're the disciples of God. But all that being said, our purpose is to glorify God. So we know that the, what the church is. And we know it universally. We know it locally. And we know what our purpose is to glorify God. How are those two questions related? When we realize that the universal church is comprised of Christians, and if I'm a Christian, I understand that my purpose is to glorify God, the local church then is comprised of Christians committed to both experiencing and expressing the glory of God. You might have heard Chad say that before. Ever hear Chad say that? That we exist as a church to both experience and express the glory of God. So we're here today to experience and express God's glory. Now, I mean, I want to unpack that some more. But that's the purpose of the church in a nutshell, to experience and express the glory of God. So not just you in your life where you're experiencing God's glory, but how do you express God's glory for the sake of other people? And I'm about to use maybe uh, one of the dirtiest words in Christian theology. The word is law. Now, I asked uh, some of my uh, young adult kids this question. You like, do you like the word law? Right? When we talk about Bible and the law, and people think more about how it's abused. No, that's, that's being judgmental. That's being legalistic. I don't like that word law, right? And have you, maybe you've heard people criticize Christianity and say, look, the Bible says that you need to uh, not wear mixed fabric and you need, and women are ceremonial unclean during this time. And if you do this, you're ceremonially unclean. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. By the way, we don't really know what that one means. But there's lots of laws that are obscure, and you're saying you need to have railing around the roof of your house. I don't know if any of you have that. We don't follow these laws, right? The food laws, don't eat shellfish, don't do these things. We don't follow these laws. And so when, when people say that, you say, well, no, 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 we're Christians. We don't follow the Jewish law. In fact, I mean, we did talk about it last week where there was a group in Antioch called the Judaizers. And that was just Jews that came and said, hey, you Gentiles, you Greek people who have never been Jewish, who have never followed Jewish law, you, if you want to be saved, have to follow all the Jewish law. And Paul looked at that and said, no, but. But 
He said the real issues are not the Jewish law. Quit your idolatry and quit your sexual immorality. Now, sometimes what we forget is what Paul is saying is law. That's law. And I'm going to tell you something only, I guess, a small handful of you will know now, but something that many Christians don't know. Now, theologians use this, but there are three types of law in the Bible. There's civil law. How do you act when somebody wrongs you? What are you supposed to do? That's just civil law. That's in the Bible. Then there's ceremonial law. How do you practice cleanliness laws? What do you do with temple sacrifice? What's the right way to do it? How do you go about these things? And then there's something called moral law. See, civil law was changing. Ceremonial law was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We don't go to the temple and make sacrifices because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. It was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to abolish moral law. In fact, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he made it in many respects harder. He would say, Moses told you this. But, and you might be thinking, oh, he's getting rid of that one. That's good. No, no, no. If you have hate in your heart, you've committed murder already. People who are sitting back and thinking, I've never, I've never committed adultery. God, I follow your law. And he looks at them and he says, have you ever had lust in your heart? So, well, that's, I mean, uh, who hasn't? He says, well, then guess what? You've committed adultery already. In fact, I, I love uh, watching some videos. My wife and I have watched uh, a lot of them. But there's a guy out there. His name's Ray Comfort. Anyone ever hear Ray Comfort? You bet. In the back. Good. Uh, he runs a ministry. It's called Living Waters. But he does street ministry. He's the kind of guy, he said, I'd love to retire, but I can't because people need Jesus. <laughs> but he goes out to the street. And he talks to people, he, he says, hey, can I ask you a few questions? He usually will ask them like, hey, do you believe, uh, do you believe that there's uh, an afterlife? And if you don't know this, Barna did research way back in the day where uh, a, all, more than half of atheists, that is people who do not believe in God, more than half of atheists do believe in an afterlife. I don't know how that works, but apparently there is no God, but we do go somewhere after death, according to them. So some people do believe in an afterlife, but people who believe uh, in an afterlife, believe in God, he asks them these questions, but then he goes in a really interesting direction. He asks them this question, are you a good person? Hey, reflect on that yourself for a moment. I mean, what would you say? If someone came up to you and said, hey, you know, are you a good person? Now, I, what I imagine, and I've done this to, to my kids at school, and I've done it in my young adult groups, and I get the same question from Christians that I get from a lot of people. And the answer is typically something like this. Yeah, I'm a good person, but I mean, I make my mistakes like anyone else. I'm a good person, but I get it wrong sometimes. Now, that's actually... That's actually the wrong answer, if you didn't know. It's the wrong answer. You're not a good person according to the Bible. In fact, when uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked, Hey, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, Well, I mean, uh, have you heard about you know, the law? And he's like, I have kept this since I was young. The funny thing is, is that Jesus just knew that he was wrong because it says he got really sad because he loved him. And he looked at the rich young ruler and he said, 
Well, there's one thing you haven't done. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it says the rich young noodle became very sad because he was very rich and he walked away. And uh, before that, the really important question that, he, that the rich young ruler asked Jesus, or what he said when he was coming up, he said, good teacher. Do you know what Jesus said in response? He said, why call me good? There is none good but God. So if Jesus is good, it must be the case that he is God, right? There is none good but God. God. And do you know what the rich young ruler basically said when he said, I followed the whole law? He said, yeah, I know. So am I. There's none good but God. And the guy says, okay, I'm good too, right? That's how I get into heaven, by being good. And the disciples even asked and said, if this is what it takes to go to heaven, God, to just really never get it wrong, then this is impossible for man. And God, and God, Jesus says, yeah, it is. But with God, all things are possible. So when Wade Comfort's asking him these questions, it's really cool because they all basically say the same thing. Yeah, I'm good, but I get it wrong sometimes. And then all he does is he says, okay, well, let's, let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever lied? And the good thing is most people are honest on that question to say, yeah, I mean, probably thousands of times. And he says, well, what do we call someone who's lied a thousand times? I mean, we, we call him a liar. But okay. He says, you know, the Bible says if you, have, if you use the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment, you lose, use the Lord's name in vain, it's blasphemy. And blasphemy was punishable by death in the Old Testament. It was a very serious crime. And blasphemy is when you use... Uh, the Lord's name as like a cuss word, right? And, and, and have you ever done this? And they'll be like, oh, shoot, yeah, I do that. I've done that quite a bit. So you've used Jesus' name as a cuss word? Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? He's like, no, I love and respect my mother. Okay. Well, have you ever hated anybody? Well, I mean, yeah, who hasn't hated somebody? And the Bible says that. If you have hate in your heart, you're a murderer. Have you ever had lust in your heart? And sometimes, by the way, they're walking on the beach, and the guys will be like, yes, <laughs> right? Yes, I have. Uh, they're, in, they're in Southern California where it's really nice, and the bathing suits are not always very appropriate. And he says, you know, the Bible says that that means you've committed adultery. He says, look, I'm only looking at four commandments. You told me yourself, but you just told me that you're a lying, blaspheming, murderous adulterer. That sounds pretty bad. That's just four commandments. I'm like, oh, shoot, that is pretty bad. I mean, and you told me you were good. If someone said, came up to you and said, by the way, nice to meet you. I'm a lying, murderous, blaspheming adulterer but I'm a good guy. You'd say, hashtag questionable. That doesn't sound that good to me. Because here's what's really important. The church needs to be teaching God's moral law or will forget its most important thing, the gospel. The gospel is good news. But if you do not understand the bad news, which is our sin, we are sinful. None are good but God. We need God for our salvation. If we forget about sin, we will forget about salvation. Who in the world thinks this is good news, salvation? if they have no need for a savior. So we need to be teaching in the church God's moral law so that people are convicted of sin and realize their desperate need for Jesus. I'll tell you what, you cannot go out and be an effective minister of the gospel to people 
if you have no way of convicting them of sin. No sin, no need. It's that simple. And so the church exists to teach God's moral law. So when people come to you and they say, well, why don't you follow all these other laws? And you can say, because I know that there's ceremonial law and civil law and there's moral law, that there's a difference. And as Christians, why would we follow the temple practices? Why would we follow the cleanliness laws? We're not Jewish. We're Christians. We are committed to God's moral law. What Jesus did not abolish, right? He fulfilled the ceremonial law, but he clarified the moral law. Hopefully that makes sense for you. The second one uh, is, is really important, but I'm going to lead into it with a really tragic story that happened recently, for me uh, specifically. I, uh, I broke a guy's finger. And not just any guy, he was uh, a student, a past student of mine. And uh, I didn't mean to, but it, it can really look that way. And here's what I mean. I was uh, at a graduation party, and this uh, guy, his name's Carson, really good guy. He came there, and we were having fun. I jumped on the trampoline, did my patented backflip, showed him that I'm old, but I can do things still. Uh, they had catered tacos there. It was a really fun experience. And Carson, uh, you know, he's been working out, getting strong, and so I got to show him that, you know, I'm still stronger than you. And uh, we play a game, a game I've played hundreds of times. And it's where you take your middle finger and you lock it with theirs, and I twist this way and he twists that way. You know, it's whoever gives up. Jamie's like, that's a terrible game. Well, I know that now. So I'm locked in, and we are like not moving. And I'm like, mm, crack, the loudest crack I've ever heard in my life. Ah, right? I'm like, no. Ah. And he looks at me, and he's like, oh, did I break your finger? I'm like, your finger. Your finger. And I, it's sideways, by the way. His finger is sideways. And yeah, you know when like something's so like loud, and, and, but also terrible? That then, like, everybody at the party's like, and looks. And his finger is sideways, and I just touch it, and it goes, and it flips back. And then he tries to close his hand, it's closing in at an angle. It's like, I don't know, Carson, but I think you might need to go in. Like, urgent care. It's like, I don't know, I might have just dislocated it. I was like, I don't know about that. It's not, it's not going straight anymore. And he's like, it doesn't even hurt, right? Doesn't even hurt. Uh, nope. And I, it, it was the kind of experience where it's like, I, I'm, at the time I was like really hoping it was dislocated. I was holding out hope. Um, but he needed two screws. And I, I'm losing sleep. I just, I, I don't know, if you've ever hurt somebody totally on accident, and it's like, oh my gosh, how do I make this right? I broke a kid's finger, right? And also, now all these other kids see it like, oh man, he's going around breaking fingers. I don't know about this guy, right? And he goes and uh, he's not answering. He's like not answering my, t I'm like reaching. I was like, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? What do you need me to do? And, and meanwhile, other students are sending me things that is like mom is saying on Facebook. And she's like, praise the Lord. He doesn't need two surgeries. He just needs one. I'm like, what? He needs surgery, right? They're going to put two screws in. But guess what? He'll have full mobility, which they thought he wouldn't. And I'm just like, I can't even believe this. It's unfathomable to me. And then finally, finally, he sent me this beautiful long text message. And he said, Mr. Canary, I'm sorry, I read your text message, and, and I forgot to get back to it. I was getting back from work. And he said, I never thought to reach out to you because I just never thought that you needed forgiveness. It was a total accident. We were both doing this, and, and you didn't mean to. I, I never thought I needed to forgive you, but just in case you think you need it, I want you to know that I forgive you. And he said, in fact, 
my whole church has been praying for you so that you wouldn't feel all that guilt. I was like, well, I, hope, I wish you would have told me that sooner. And then, and then he says, and then he even has the perspective to say this. He said, you know, I've been praying to God that I would stop playing so much video games because I've realized it's become an idol in my life. He, and he's like, I just didn't think you would answer it in this way. <laughs> and I said, I'm glad that you have that perspective. I just didn't want to be the ambassador of that for you. But I'll tell you what, I needed that forgiveness. I was losing real sleep. It was haunting me. Let me read for you what it says in James. And, and they're talking about the function of the church here in James. It says this, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, this to me is an indictment of the American church because we often come to church and we smile and we greet and we say, hello, how are you? I'm fine. I'm great. I'm good. And we treat church like it's Instagram or some other social media where we only show our best pictures. And so that anyone who's looking at it will be like, man, their life is perfect. How come my life isn't like that? So people coming to church, when all you are ever telling them is life is great, life is dandy, life is good, they think, man, my life is falling apart and everyone else is doing just fine. You know, hardships are not just the things that are affecting us, but it's also the sin within us. We struggle not just external things that are happening to us. We struggle with internal things happening within us. And it's why James says, when you go to church, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Church needs to be an authentic experience where we realize that if you're healthy, you don't need it. The trick is realizing you're not healthy. And coming here and sharing yourself uniquely and really. There is great joy and beauty in being exposed, but forgiven anyways. So if we as a church are going to be ambassadors of God's forgiveness, it starts with how well we forgive each other. How well we usher other people into that forgiveness. People confess their sins so that they can know, one, that they're forgiven, two, that they're supported, and three, that they'll be helped. The church provides that for its people. I had uh, a really interesting experience happen to me really uh, recently. I'm going to be um, careful with the details. Uh, but I was um, sleeping, and, and it was very providential, meaning that I know God orchestrated this, because my phone was on silent. But my phone was ringing. And it was early in the morning. My wife heard it, and she said, what's that? I'm like, what is that? Why is my phone ringing? And I look at it, and it's a, a student I haven't spoken with in a very long time. And I pick it up, and I say hello. And this person is going through something. And I realize, in fact, this person even said, I've deleted almost everybody's number from my phone, but I still have yours because you were always good to me. And I realized that my investment in this person's life in that relationship led in many ways to this moment. But I could tell that the head wasn't right. 
and I'm talking to this person, talking to this person, and they ask me to come over. And you know what? Of course I would do that. If they need me to come over, and I said, okay, I'll do that. And then they said, well, I don't know if you know what I'm asking you to do. And then they asked, they told me, I'm not going to tell you what it was, but it was insane. And I realized in that moment that I was talking effectively to my brother. Now, if you don't know, my, my brother has some brain struggles. And I learned early on how to chase him away. When somebody tells you something, in fact, if, if this person said the same thing to you, it would be easy for you to say, are you insane? Are you, in cra are you crazy? How can you possibly say that? What's going through your head? What are you thinking? Your instinct when people say stuff like this and say, are you on something? Is something going on with you? Are you crazy? In fact, this person even said, so many people have left my life because they think I'm crazy. I knew through my experience of this struggle how to talk to this person. I was talking to my brother. And because I knew how to chase him away, I knew what not to say to chase her away. Long story short, this person is getting the help that they desperately need. This person is exactly where they need to be. And I say that because as a church, if we are not coming together and sharing our problems and sharing our struggles, we are robbing each other of an opportunity to strengthen one another. You know that sometimes you learn lessons through the lessons that other people have already learned? Do you know that sometimes that you can identify and, and help in the struggles of other people when you realize that you've endured it yourself? We strengthen one another. Iron sharpens iron when we are real with one another and share our struggles, share our pain, share our sin. We can help people that when, man, they're faced with a similar opportunity, they can say, you know what? Matt went through something like that. I know how to handle it. Sometimes hardships prepare us for future hardships. And maybe the hardships of another person will prepare you for your own. But if people aren't sharing it, they're not hearing it. And if they're not hearing it, they're not learning from it. And so that is something that we need to do as a church is we need to be authentic with one another. In fact, I've told my students this many times and they realize it, that one of the things I'm really great about is teaching them from my own mistakes. Not a single person in my classroom thinks I'm a perfect person. Because my best lessons often come from the times I fell myself. And, and if I can help them not do the same thing, I'm going to do it. Okay. I want to read Galatians uh, 6.2 to you very quickly because it's a good summary statement for what I just told you. It says this. Now, this is Paul talking to the church in Galatia. It says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. How could you possibly carry that which is not shared. You hear that? If we are not sharing our burdens, then how can we help you carry them? It needs to be a part of the church. Now, this is the, the, last, the last point that I want to make. Is that uh, as we come to church, I mean, we've talked about uh, experiencing Right? Experiencing forgiveness, experiencing um, uh, God in this sanctuary, but also how do we express it? And the point I want to make is that we're not merely 
partakers of church. We're part of church. So we're not merely partakers. We are part of church. And um, an example, I have tons of examples from when I worked at Costco. Now, you know that Costco is a membership club, right? It's a membership club. And when I, I've told this story many moons ago, but it's worth sharing again. When I worked at Costco, uh, I worked for a time in the refunds department, which is the hardest department to work in um, because the goal is to give them their money back pretty much always, no matter what. Someone will hand you a baggie, and it, you'll be like, what's this? I'm like, that's ah, underwear. I'm like, okay, you know, when did you buy it? And they're like, eh, four years ago. And you're thinking, wow, that's a long time. And then you look it up, and you're like, actually, it was 10. <laughs> 10 years ago. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, well, it's got a lot of holes in them, so I don't know. They're not really working out any, anymore, right? All right, it has all the under, uh, but too much wear. Uh, but so we, we say, okay, uh, makes sense. Sorry that happened, right? But you're really thinking, what did you think? Like just, they never wear out? But you take them and you give them their money. Oh, have a nice day. Hope you buy some more underwear. See you in 10 years, you know? Right? All right. Well, I had this, this guy one time who came in. And he rolled in a uh, cart this hose that was all circled up. And it was old. You ever seen you know, like an old hose? Like this has been in a yard for 20 years. And he wheels it up and I say, oh, wow. So uh, return the hose. He's like, yeah, I got to re return the hose. And, you know, one of the things you have to do is you have to verify the purchase. And I go and I'm not seeing this thing in the system. There's no hose at all. I so, said, like, you know, when did, uh, when did you purchase it? He's like, oh, a long time ago. And he says, do you want the receipt? I'm like, you have the receipt? He pulls out a receipt that was at one time white. It is, it is like crisp yellow. If I blow on this thing, it's falling apart, <laughs> right? This hose is, is, he bought it before we had our systems to track it, okay? And I say, oh, wow, like, uh, what's, what's wrong with the hose? He says, well, it, it's uh, not supposed to kink. And I look at this hose, and it's very old, but there's no visible signs of it ever kinking. I say, oh, so, so uh, it, it got some kinks in it. He said, no. But I felt like it was going <laughs> to. I say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Here's your money, <laughs> right? Here's your money. And people who are at Costco know that Costco, as a corporation, as a sort of cooperative society, Costco exists to serve its members. And at any time they feel like, you know what, Costco's no longer serving me in the way I think it should be, they just will leave, right? That's the nature of how it works. They love this risk-free feeling that Costco doesn't. I don't buy anything and I just return it, right? I bought this at Walmart, but Costco gave me money back. And that's just kind of how they operate. But I need to tell you that church is not Costco. It's not Costco. In fact, church is perhaps the only cooperative society in the history of the world that exists for the sake of its non-members. You hear that? That at church, we come here together to strengthen one another so that we can benefit those who need the gospel. We exist not for ourselves, but for the sake of those who need it. And now this is, this is really interesting because if we are part of the universal church and the local church is what those people are doing, it means that you are part of the church. And if you are part of the church and not just someone who partakes and says, I come so that it fills my need. I come so I get what, what I want. And if it's no longer giving me what I want and what I need, I leave and I go and I find another. When you realize the purpose is for you to be a part then when problems come, you realize that you're also part of the solution. 
So rather than go and say, man, the church ought to be doing this, and when it's not, you say, nah, and you leave, maybe you can stop and say, how can I help? The church gives us opportunities to serve. Because think about this. If we cannot even serve the church, how are we supposed to serve the people outside of it? The church is not just something you partake. It's something you are part of. So you'll notice in the verse today that I, whoa, hello, that I read at the beginning that it says, Paul went through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That word strength. These are the many ways that we get strength so that we can serve people outside the church. Right? We, we need to be experiencing and expressing God's glory in the church through understanding his moral law, knowing that we need God in our lives. It's so crucial. We cannot forget our need so that we can effectively communicate the need to other people. And when we know of our sin, we seek forgiveness. And we confess it to one another in this authentic space. It should be an authentic space. And we also serve the church. We are part of the church. And uh, in summary, I, I said this. The church strengthens us, prepares us for ministry in a world that needs it. It convicts us of sin, reminds us of our own need for Jesus so that we can remind others of theirs. It is a place for us to share our burdens and share in the burdens of others so that we can prepare each other for similar struggles and similar burdens. Knowing that the church is a place where they're not alone. And lastly, as a part of the church, you're part of the solutions. So where there is a need, you won't sit back and wonder why the church is not meeting it. You'll stand up and say, how can I help? And I think that is a pretty good summary of the church. So let me pray. Lord, just thank you that uh, though this was an intimate crowd, I could come here and summarize just what the church is, God. That we do exist here to experience and express your glory. God, I pray that you would help us do that. God, I hope that we would not be a part of the problem where we shop around churches and we go and we fake and we pretend and we're not real with one another, but we'll be part of the solution, God. That we'll be willing to be vulnerable with one another. We'll be willing to share in the burdens of others, which means we must share ours too. God, that we will confess our sins, that we will pray for one another, God, that we will be real and authentic so that we can experience forgiveness here so that we can express forgiveness there. And we just thank you so much that you are a God who knows we cannot do it by ourselves. So you've done it all for us. I pray that we would live into that grace, God, and that we would express that grace to others. And we love you in your precious name. Amen.